Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Hi, and welcome to this episode on the Eucharist. I'll tell you what, I am so excited for this episode. This is literally one of the most important, if not the most important topic that we will cover in this entire podcast. Like, I literally cannot overemphasize just how important, and not just important, but like amazing and mind-blowing the Eucharist is. So strap yourselves in. <laughs> By the way, this isn't just like a random personal enthusiasm that I happen to have for the Eucharist. This is like official church teaching. So Vatican II refers to the Eucharist as the source and the summit of Christian life. When you think about it, that is a pretty incredible statement to make. Like basically the church is pointing to the Eucharist and saying, hey guys, this is everything. This is the most important aspect of our Christian lives. And that's a huge thing to say. I mean, even the fact that the church has about 30 bajillion names for the Eucharist. Okay, it's not actually 30 bajillion. It's nine. There are nine names. Well, nine most common names that the Catholic Church uses for the Eucharist. But even nine names tells you a lot about how important it is. Like, we give something multiple names when one name isn't enough to capture everything that it is. So, like, I have a baby sister, and I've noticed that I am constantly thinking up new nicknames for her, new pet names, because it's like one isn't enough to express how important she is to me. I'm, I've always got to think up more. And it's the same with the Eucharist. We use terms like the Holy Mass, the Lord's Supper, the Most Holy Sacrament of the Altar, Holy Communion. I mean, I mean, these are just some of the names that we use, and each of them expresses something different and unique and beautiful about this sacrament. I mean, we don't have time to go through each of those names in this episode, but I would recommend reading that section of the Catechism if you're interested, points 1328 to 1332, because it's a useful thing to pray about, to deepen in our knowledge of the Eucharist. But each of these names, like none of them captures the mystery of the Eucharist in its entirety, which is actually such a beautiful thing because it just shows how rich this sacrament is, that language, words alone can't even capture how important and how wonderful it is. So the Catechism, quoting Vatican II, tells us in point 1324 that the other sacraments, indeed all ecclesial ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and oriented towards it. So in other words, every single thing that the Catholic Church does, all of its sacraments and its ministries and its apostolic activities, ultimately, they are all oriented towards the Eucharist. So Fulton Sheen talks about it being like six arrows all pointing inwards to one central point. Okay, so the Eucharist, super important. Why? Why is the Eucharist so important? Well, again, in the words of Vatican II, in the Blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself. So the Eucharist is Jesus Christ himself, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. The Eucharist is God. And what more could we want for our spiritual nourishment than to receive God himself? 
And the Catechism tells us that when we receive God in the Eucharist, we become more fully united to him. We grow in unity with each other, the whole communion of saints, with the whole church. We are united with Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and we receive a foretaste of the heavenly liturgy and heaven itself. So it's like the whole package when we receive the Eucharist. And this is one of the reasons why like, I've had so many conversations with people who've said that they just could never leave the Catholic Church, even if there were things that they didn't understand or that they were frustrated by, or like if they went to a parish where the youth group was really daggy or the music was terrible or the parish priest was off-putting, even when we hear about scandals within the church and people doing appalling things. I mean, those things are obviously painful and really hard, and we should never just be like, oh, well, we've got the Eucharist, so who cares? I mean, communion of saints, like, we should always be trying to build up the church. But ultimately, if we understand what the Eucharist actually is, if we really get that that's Christ himself, we become like the apostles. We're like, Lord, to whom shall we go? Like, where else could I possibly go now that I know that it's really you in the Eucharist? And I think sometimes... Maybe it's not so much that we don't understand or we don't know what the Eucharist is. Like, maybe we get it intellectually, but we can get a little bit desensitized. So, like, the other day, I overheard these two guys talking to each other about how they'd both been raised Catholic, but then once they'd left school, they just stopped practicing their faith. And one of them just said in passing, he was like, yeah, you know that Catholics actually believe that that's Jesus in the Eucharist. Like, that's not a metaphor. They think it's really him. And the other guy was like, yeah, yeah, I know. It's crazy. Hey, yeah. And then the conversation just moved on. And I was listening to this and I was thinking like, hang on a second. (laughs) Hold the phone. Back the truck up. Did you just hear what you just said, guys? Like, you, you literally just said Catholics believe that they are eating actual Jesus in the Eucharist. They're eating the body of Jesus. Like, that's not just a little bit crazy. That's not something that you just say and then move on from. That's insane. That is mind-blowing. And the way that these guys were talking about it, it was like they weren't even outraged or, you know, particularly interested in it. It's just like they were almost amused by that idea. It was like they were imagining a couple of kind of slightly dotty, superstitious little old ladies in a church who, like, really believe that it's Jesus, just like some kids really believe in Santa. It was like an idea that wasn't even serious enough to get worked up about. But in reality, this isn't just something that a couple of old biddies believe. This is something that some of the greatest minds in history have not just taken seriously but have argued for in incredibly complex theological terms. So people like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and Pope St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI and Edith Stein. And not just that, there are plenty of examples of people throughout history who have died for the Eucharist. They've been martyred. And these are normal, rational, everyday people who have died for their belief in the Eucharist. So This isn't just some kind of benign, emotional, fringe belief of a few simple and unenlightened minds. This is something that it deserves to be taken seriously. And once we start to take the Eucharist seriously, we also start to realise that the consequences of it are pretty massive, especially for other non-Catholic Christians. Like, if the Catholic Church is wrong about the Eucharist, That means that billions of people over thousands of years 
have been kneeling down in front of a piece of bread and worshipping it as God. Not just revering it as a nice symbol, literally worshipping it as God. That's not just like, oh, well, whoops, you know, the Catholics made a mistake. No, that's idolatry. That's sacrilege. It's serious stuff. Like, we're potentially endangering our souls by participating in the Mass if we're wrong. Scott Hahn talks about how when he was a Presbyterian, he was absolutely outraged at the idea of the Eucharist. And he devoted a lot of his time and energy trying to save his Catholic friends from it. And I think that that's an entirely appropriate response. On the flip side, though... If Catholics are correct, if Jesus himself is truly present in the Eucharist, if that's him in the tabernacle, like, that would be like if someone came to me and said, like, hey, Caitlin, Roger Federer is at the front door and he wants to hang out. And I was like, no, I think I'll wash my hair instead. Like, no, of course, you would run to the door to hang out with him. Just like Peter jumped out of the boat and ran to the shoreline when he saw Jesus. If that's really there, we got to run to him. Okay, so we've established that this is an important topic and we need to think about it and take it seriously. Great. So how do we do that? Where do we start? Well, as with all of the sacraments, we begin with the Gospels. Because the sacraments aren't just inventions of the Church. They all are established by Jesus. So we always start with the Gospels. And one of the most commonly cited passages on the Eucharist in the New Testament is the Gospel of John, chapter 6. So in this chapter, Jesus is talking to his followers who have all been like looking everywhere for him because he recently fed the 5,000 and they're all super excited about it. And they've come to him kind of looking for a repeat performance. And Jesus kind of calls them out on this, right? He says, you are looking for me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. And then he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, this is a really interesting progression of ideas because we can see that at the very beginning, Jesus is talking to his followers about physical bread. Okay, something that they have just experienced, very easy to understand. Great. And then he moves into a kind of metaphorical language, right? He starts saying, I am the bread of life. And this is pretty standard stuff for Jesus, right? Like he's often using metaphors to talk about himself. He'll say, I am the vine or I am the good shepherd, etc. So at this point, it's like, yeah, okay, cool. We're all on board. You're the bread of life. Great. Love it. But then he throws them this kind of curveball. He suddenly says, the bread that I will give is my flesh. And this is something different. And we can see that it is in the way that his followers respond. So it says that they quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they've clearly taken him literally there. Now, in all other instances in the gospel where Jesus' disciples take Jesus literally when he's actually speaking figuratively, he corrects them and he explains the parable. So, for instance, we can think of when Jesus is talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and the apostles think he's talking about actual bread and Jesus has to be like, guys, come on, keep up. So this right now is Jesus' opportunity to do that, to be like, no, 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 I don't actually mean my literal flesh. You have misunderstood me. But Jesus does not do that. Instead, he says, Amen, amen, I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. I mean, first of all, the fact that Jesus begins with, Amen, Amen, I say to you, Like, that is always a sign in the Gospels that Jesus is about to say something big. And then he goes on to repeat himself four times in a row, each time with more emphasis, saying, I am the bread of life. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. When Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches, he didn't then go on to say, amen, amen, I say to you, I am truly a vine. I'm a true vine. My branches are real branches. My leaves are real leaves. I'm a vine. I'm a viney vine. (laughs) Jesus is obviously trying to communicate something more than just a metaphor here. Bishop Barron talks about how the Hebrew word for eat that Jesus uses translates more directly to something like gnaw or munch on. It's the kind of word that you would use to describe an animal eating something. So Jesus has chosen the most visceral, physical language possible, and he's using it over and over again. He's kind of pummeling his followers with these words. Like he could not be more clear if he tried. And This isn't just, by the way, a modern-day interpretation of Jesus' words. We can see in the Gospel that Jesus' followers are completely thrown by what he's saying. It says, Many of his disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? And as a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Now, Scott Hahn makes this point. He says that, If Jesus had been speaking metaphorically, this, this is the point in the conversation where he would be under a moral obligation to clarify his words. It's like Jack Sparrow. If you're looking for the opportune moment, that was it. People are walking away. They are actually leaving him. He cannot allow them to leave him over a misunderstanding. At this point, if he's speaking metaphorically, he's got to say something. But instead of doing that, instead of calling back his disciples and explaining what he really meant... What does he do? He turns to the 12 apostles and he says to them, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? In other words, you can take it or leave it, but I am not backing down from this. And I absolutely love the apostles' response to this question. They say to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love that because, I mean, think about it. Imagine if you turned to, like, your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend and said, you love me, right? Like, you're not going to leave me for anyone else. And they said, um, uh, I mean, who would I leave you for? <laughs> like, that's not exactly the answer you'd be hoping for. You'd be hoping for something a little bit more along the lines of, like, as if, no way, there's no way, I would never leave you. And we actually do hear the apostles using that kind of language. Later in John's Gospel, right before the crucifixion, we hear the apostles saying, let us go also that we may die with him. In Matthew's Gospel, Peter tells our Lord, you know, basically, I would die before I ever denied you. So they're totally capable of using that language. But in this instance, it's clear by their words that they're kind of shook. (laughs) They're basically saying, look, Jesus, you just told us to eat you. (laughs) We're super weirded out and we don't know how to take it. And we can understand why everyone's leaving. But 
we also have nowhere else to go and we believe that you're the Messiah. So we're just going to stick with you and trust that you know what you're doing. So something is happening in this scene that is clearly shaking everyone up. There's a kind of earthquake going on here. This isn't just a metaphor. And then, of course, all of this language comes into focus at the Last Supper, where we see Jesus taking the bread and wine and saying to his apostles, this is my body. This is my blood. He doesn't say, this is a symbol of my body, or this is just like my blood. He says, this is my body and blood. The same Jesus who earlier said, my flesh is real food, has now held up a piece of bread and said, this is my body. And then he tells the apostles, do this in memory of me. In other words, he gives those 12 apostles, the first bishops of the church, the power to do the same. And as with all of the other sacraments, they then handed on that power to their successors until the present day. So the catechism in point 1413 says that under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real and substantial manner, his body and his blood with his soul and his divinity. So in other words, when we go to Mass and the priest stands there in the person of Christ and says the words of consecration, we believe that Jesus himself becomes truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, it's one thing to believe that this is something that really happens, and another thing to understand exactly how it happens. And this is where we go back to some of the ideas that we explored in our very first episode on faith. I love the way that the apologist Dave Armstrong puts it. He says, Transubstantiation may be considered beyond reason, yet it is not opposed to reason. Suprarational, but not irrational, much like Christian theology in general. So in other words, just because something is too big for us to fully comprehend, that doesn't mean it's irrational. Okay, so we've just introduced the word transubstantiation. So that's a word that you may or may not have heard before. So what does it mean? Okay, well, the idea actually goes back to Aristotle, who distinguished between what he called substance and accidents. So substance refers to what something is, and accidents refers to its non-essential external attributes. So they're not accidental in the sense that God's like, whoops, sorry, accidentally made your hair blonde. We mean that they're accidental in the sense that they are not essential to what something is. So I am Caitlin West, the human person. Okay, that's what I am. I also happen to have blonde hair and two arms and two legs. Now, if I dye my hair pink or I lose an arm or a leg or I grow taller and I change my clothes, I don't stop being Caitlin West. My substance remains the same, even though the accidents change. Now, when it comes to the Eucharist, the opposite happens. When the priest says the words of consecration at Mass, the accidental properties of the host remain the same but the substance changes. So under those appearances of bread and wine, the substance of bread is no longer there and has been replaced by the substance of Jesus Christ in his body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's a bit like swapping out one person for another from under a blanket, right? It looks exactly the same from the outside, but there's someone under there who wasn't there before. Or another example that we could use that's kind of loosely analogous is Freaky Friday, right? Where it looks like the mom, sounds like the mom, but it's actually the daughter. 
Neither of those two images fully captures what actually occurs in transubstantiation, and that's largely because it isn't something that naturally occurs in the world around us, and it's wholly unique and completely miraculous. So it's very hard to find an, an analogy that actually maps perfectly onto it. But these images give us a bit of a visual that can help us to understand how Christ can be truly present under the appearances of bread and wine. It's important here to note that when we talk about Jesus' body being made present in the Eucharist, we're talking about his resurrected, glorified body. So if you remember, in the New Testament, after Jesus rises from the dead, his body is glorified and he's able to do a whole bunch of cool things that a normal human body isn't able to do. So he's able to pass through walls. Like he suddenly appears in the locked room of the disciples and is like, peace be with you. And they're all like, that. Ah. <laughs> or we read in Mark chapter 16, he showed himself under another form to two of them on the road to Emmaus. So he's able to change his appearance. He's able to walk through walls. So a normal human body obviously can't be present whole and entire in all of the tabernacles of the world all at once under the appearances of bread and wine. Only a resurrected, glorified body that isn't inhibited by the laws of nature is able to do that. And because it's Jesus' glorified body, it's also not like when I receive the Eucharist, like I get a bit of his foot and you get a bit of his shoulder. No. In every particle of the Eucharist, all of Christ is fully present. So in point 1377, the Catechism says that Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and each of their parts in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. So that's why we have to be really careful when we receive communion, especially if we receive it on the hand, that we don't let even a little crumb fall to the ground. I mean, you don't need to be scrupulous about it, but it's really good to be reverent and careful and to check your hand if you receive communion on the hand. So the Catechism tells us in point 1377 that the Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsist. So in other words, once the Eucharist is consecrated, it's not like Christ just hangs around for five minutes and then is like, well, this has been lovely, but I have other things to do and then disappears, right? I mean, when I was a kid, I used to think because we do 10 or 15 minutes of thanksgiving, of prayer after we receive communion, I thought that Christ was only present for 10 or 15 minutes. And then he kind of like floated off and was like, bye. But no, Christ remains present in the Eucharist for as long as the species subsist. So until it is broken down and absorbed into our bodies. So what this means is that we absorb the body of Jesus into our own bodies. I mean, that's an amazing thought. And it's so appropriate that God, who is love itself and wants to be as close to us as possible, has given us a gift like that. And we can return here to the point that we made at the start of the episode, that when we receive the Eucharist, we experience more fully the divine life of Christ. And we can see here how true that is, that not only do we receive the divine life of God in our souls in baptism, not only are we flooded with the grace of the Holy Spirit in confirmation, we also receive the whole entire person of Jesus Christ in communion that is then absorbed into our physical bodies. It takes that whole you are what you eat thing to a whole other level. It's like God is allowing us to be as united to him as we possibly can be on this earth. Again, it's so appropriate. God is love itself. Of course he wants that for us. 
And if we remember that this is the last of the three sacraments of initiation, we can see how communion completes our incorporation into the mystical body of Christ. Even that word, communion. We truly experience communion with God and with the whole church when we receive the Eucharist. Okay, so here's an interesting point. Did you know that the word transubstantiation wasn't actually really coined until the 13th century? That's when the church formally used that word for the first time, at the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215. So we might hear that and be tempted to think that maybe this whole transubstantiation, Christ really being present in the Eucharist thing, was just a medieval invention. Like it wasn't even a thing for the first thousand or so years of Christianity and then it suddenly appears. Well, there are a couple of things to say here. First of all, many of the mysteries of Christianity took a long time to fully articulate and understand and to develop a vocabulary for because they are such complex and huge ideas. So things like the Trinity and the hypostatic union. And it's the same with the Eucharist. In the early church, you have people using words like transformation and transmutation. And it took a little while for the church to find the most accurate way to describe what actually happens at the moment of consecration. But the other point to make here is that just because something hasn't been formally defined by the church doesn't mean that it hasn't been widely accepted. So think of it like this. If I went to Japan... I wouldn't expect to see like a big notice on the front of everyone's house saying, please remove your shoes when you come inside. And the reason for that is that it's so commonly accepted that people don't wear shoes indoors that no one actually needs to formally ask for it. Everyone just takes off their shoes when they go inside. However, let's say that, you know, over 50 or 100 years, there's a kind of cultural shift, right? And people start to wear their shoes indoors. In that case... If you wanted someone to take their shoes off, you might then need to put up a little sign that's formally asking people to take off their shoes. So it's the same with church doctrine. The church doesn't need to formally declare and define things when they're just commonly accepted. It's only when something becomes a point of contention that the church actually needs to spell it out. Now, this doesn't mean that we're making an argument from silence, right? We're not saying, well, there was no formal dogma, so we assume it was just fine. No, we're not assuming anything. Even if there was no formal dogma, that doesn't mean that there was no evidence that people believed that Christ was truly present in the Eucharist. So if I were an anthropologist and I went to Japan, I could figure out that people take their shoes off indoors, even if no one had a sign up, because I can see everyone's shoes lined up by the door. So in the same way, we can see evidence that in the early church, it was just commonly accepted that the Eucharist was truly the body and blood of Jesus. And we find a lot of this evidence in the writings of the early church fathers, as far back as the first century AD. So, for example... St. Ignatius of Antioch, in his letter to the Smyrinians, which dates to the 1st century AD, writes that the Gnostics abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. This is the 1st century AD. And then we have... And then we have Justin Martyr in the second century, and he writes that we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. And then St. Irenaeus in the second century as well writes, 
The mixed cup and the baked bread receives the word of God and becomes the Eucharist, the body of Christ. Tertullian in the second century, the flesh feeds on the body and blood of Christ so that the soul too may fatten on God. Even the Didache, which is an early Christian treatise that dates from around the year 96 AD, talks about how only baptized Christians were allowed to receive the Eucharist because it was so sacred. In fact, in the early church, catechumens, so people who were preparing to be baptized, they were required to leave the Mass before the consecration occurred because it was something so sacred that only the baptized could be present for it. Even St. Paul, in the first letter to the Corinthians, says, "...the cup of blessing which we bless..." Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And later he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I mean, this is not the way that you talk about a purely symbolic ritual. There is clearly something deeply sacred here for the first Christians. So even though our understanding of how the Eucharist works has grown and deepened over time, from the very earliest days of the church, the fact that Jesus was present in the Eucharist was just taken as given. Now, there is still so much more to say about the Eucharist. We haven't even started talking about things like matter and form, or like who is the minister of the sacrament, and what do we need to do to receive it, and how can we possibly say that the Eucharist is a sacrifice when Jesus has already definitively offered the one irrepeatable sacrifice on the cross. So we are going to continue this discussion in the next episode. Cliffhanger! You're welcome. (laughs) Okay, okay. I hope that you have a lovely week and I will look forward to talking to you again in a fortnight. Bye!